0: Yeah, good morning, everyone, and thanks again for your, your invitation to be, to be with you. Um, it's uh, yeah, great to be able to just connect in this, in this way. Um, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6 uh, this morning, Judges chapter 6, and we're going to focus in uh, on the first part of the story uh, of Gideon. Um, we're going to read um, a pretty big chunk of the chapter. I think it's the whole chapter, actually. Um, so um, I'll just make a start. Um, and uh, let you know uh, what verse we're at as you you join us uh, in the passage. So, uh, Judges chapter 6 and verse 1, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the countries. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. Verse 5, they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came down and sat under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about Sorry, where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not say it sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in the family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made a bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tips of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the rites. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar they asked each other who did this when they carefully investigated they were told Gideon son of Joash did it the people of the town demanded of Joash bring out your son he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it but Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him are you going to plead Baal's cause are you trying to save him whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbabel that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abisrach to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed out the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. And we trust God had a blessing to the reading of his word. Um, This is a a familiar story to to many, uh, the story of, of Gideon. Uh, and it's a familiar story when it comes to the children of Israel as well, when they, uh, when you realize the predicament that they find themselves in at the beginning of this chapter. And we start off with a familiar verse once again, the Israelites did what was right in their own eyes and evil in the eyes of the Lord. The children of Israel um, have got themselves into this this cycle that started um, in Judges chapter 2, verse 11, we read the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they served the Baals. They turned their back on God and they started to serve uh, the Baals. And there's lots of judges that have come before. We're getting on to judge number six uh, at this point. Um, we've had Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah and Barak, and neither of them have had, have given enough warning um, that they have been able to stop this cycle, this destructive cycle that the children of Israel find themselves in, rebellion, repentance, and renewal. They rebel against God. Things get to a point where they can't cope with it anymore. And so they repent before God. And then there's renewal as God restores them and builds them back up again. But before long, they find themselves back rebelling against God. And this whole cycle starts again. And after Deborah comes Gideon and when you think of all the judges that have come before you can quite clearly see where their strengths lie Deborah and Barak the great strategists the great people of wisdom Shamgar the, the, the one who could slay 600 Philistines with the jawbone um, of a donkey um, all of these judges bringing great skills and great gifts and you see it and you're quite clearly able to see why God chose them then you get Gideon And you kind of scratch your head a little bit as to why Gideon would be chosen by God. He's a completely different type of judge. While the others brought great wisdom or strength, Gideon brought not an awful lot. Gideon Gideon was a coward. Uh, When we first meet Gideon in this chapter, he's not brave. He's hiding food from the Midianites. He's ready to run off into the hills. He's blaming God for all of his problems. He cuts down idols in the dark. He lets his daddy speak for him while he quivers in the background. Um, Gideon is not a man of great strength. Gideon is not a brave man. He is the youngest member of a family that is the weakest clan of a half tribe. Gideon is nobody. And yet. God can use Gideon to do such amazing things. And now thousands of years later, we are talking about who good Gideon is and the things that he was able to do through God. There's good news in the book of Judges when we come to, to, to the man of Gideon because we learn that God can use anyone. God can use anyone to accomplish great things. And Gideon is the judge that each of us can, re- can relate to the most, I'm sure. Unless there's some Samsons in the Zoom call that I'm not aware of or some Shamgars, Gideon is probably the one that we can relate to the most. We we might not be Shamgars or Deborahs or Samson, but all of us have a little bit of Gideon within us. And as we jump into the first six verses of this uh, chapter, we're joining the Israelites in a particularly dark time in their history, and they've gone into lockdown now four months ago we had no idea what that would what that would represent going into lockdown now we understand it pretty well uh, don't we but for them lockdown wasn't um a virus that had come into their land uh, it was completely different it was these surrounding nations that were coming in and destroying everything that they had trying uh, to wipe out the people altogether. and so they fled the land that god given that had given them and they'd retreated into the hills uh, to live like cave people. They're in a place of weakness and they're hiding from the Midianites as well as Amalekites and other countries of nations around about. And whenever and whatever crops that Israelites have planted, the Midianites sweep in like locusts and destroy everything that they have spent time working for and trying uh, to, to prepare for themselves. These people, they took Israel's sheep, their oxen, their donkeys. They left them without the tools to be able to provide for themselves. And slowly, the children of Israel were being wiped out as a result of this. And it shouldn't have come as a surprise to the children of Israel because God told them exactly what their penalty for disobedience would be. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 29, we read, At midday you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but but you will eat none of it. Your donkey will be forcibly taken from you and will not be returned. Your sheep will be given to your enemies and no one will rescue them. That sounds pretty much like the situation that the Israelites have found themselves in, does not it? doesn't it? And so they shouldn't be surprised by what's happening because they have done exactly what God told them not to do. They've turned their back on him. Those, those commandments that we were singing, thinking about singing about earlier on, they've broken them and they've turned their back on God. They should not be surprised that they're running to the hills uh, to hide From their oppressors. And this has gone on for seven years. Seven years of being hungry, tired, afraid and poor. Seven years of escaping to the hill with hills with only enough uh, that you can carry and waiting until the next year when you know that things are going to get harder still. They get to the very bottom of the pit. They get to the very end of their wits. They come to the place where they realize they can't do anything for themselves anymore They get to the furthest point of their rebellion, and then they repent. Then they realize, you know what? I can't do this anymore. We can't do this on our own. We need to cry out to God. How often is God the insurance policy in our lives? That we wait until we realize that there's nothing that we can do ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to fix this situation. We come to our last bit of hope, and then we turn to God. That's the situation here. And I'm sure that many of us can relate to this as we try to battle things in our lives on our own. But we can't do this on our own. We can't live the life of a Christian on our own. We can't find favor in God's eyes on our own. We need to turn to him. We need to repent and give our all to him uh, in, in order to be saved, in order to be rescued. So this is where the children of Israel come. They come crying out for help and help comes but not the help that they would have expected. They were looking for another Shangar. They were looking for another Deborah. They were looking for a great warrior to come and lead them into battle and to destroy the nations around about them. But that's not what they got. What did they get? They got a prophet. They didn't even get a judge. They got a prophet. They got a word instead of a sword. This would be like being stuck on the... The the M8 uh, outside Moody's broken down. You phone the AA and instead of a mechanic, they send a philosopher. Brilliant. He's going to sit in your back seat and tell you about everything that you've done wrong. That's not what you need. You need someone to come and fix the car, so you might say. So they are asking for someone to come to rescue them and God instead sends someone to come and refresh them. And again, how often is that what we need, that we cry out and we say, God, save save me from this circumstance, save me from where I find myself. Actually, that's not what we need. We don't need to be rescued. We need to be refreshed. We need to remember that the reason that we're in the circumstance is because God has put us there, because God has something for us to learn from these circumstances, and we want to be refreshed in this and renewed, and we want to know that God is with us in every circumstance. And that's what this unnamed prophet is sent to do, to refresh the children of Israel, to make sure that they understand why they are suffering so that they don't slip back into the old ways. That He comes and he says, this is what the Lord of God says. He repeats the grace um, that God has offered to them. Uh, before in the past when he says that God has brought them up out of Egypt out of the land of Israel I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors I drove them out before you and gave you their land I've done all of this for you in the past and then he says the stipulation he says I said to you this is the one thing I said to you I am the Lord your God do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live and then there's the accusation that you have not listened to me. This prophet lays out exactly what God has done for them, what God expected from them, from them, and how they ended up in this situation that they find themselves in. Normally, in this um, in this cycle that prophets normally give after the accusation, there's normally the judgment. This is what's going to happen to you as a result. But we don't get that here in this chapter. Instead of a judgment, we get a, a therefore. Um, we And God surprises us by delaying judgment and bringing grace and mercy to the situation. He says, this is what I'm going to do for you. Instead of judgment, we get mercy. And this is the surprise that takes every Christian by surprise when we recognize our circumstances before God. And we recognize our own rebellion and yet experience his great Grace. It's my favorite chapter in the their sentence in the Bible. It's not actually a whole chapter. My favorite sentence in the Bible, James chapter 2, verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the, the the four words that I repeat to myself day after day. When I find myself going away from God, when I find myself making mistakes, I'm so thrilled with the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment, that God loves to give me more mercy than He does judgment and he's shown me that um, through the person of his son the Lord Jesus Christ and so God sent the children of Israel a prophet to make sure that they understand where they've gone wrong it's like if you see see a a child fall in the street um, in front of your eyes and you go to treat the wound and there's a a a cut with some dirt inside it what do you do first you don't just bandage it over do you you go in and you take out all of the dirt and you and you um, heal heal the wound and you um, you put ointment on the wound in order to make sure that you treat the infect, that there's not an infection that will spread. And this is what this prophet came to do. Before there would be a judge, there was a prophet. God has to clean the wound of the disobedience and then he'll send a judge to heal the wound. And that's what Gideon was asked to do. Here he comes into the story in verse eleven. And he's beating the wheat out of a wine press. He's terrified of the Midianites. So he's hiding his produce, trying to get as much as he can for himself. And then the angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, clearly not recognizing who is speaking, he starts to argue um, with this uh, angel that it's quite clear that God is not with him. God is not with his family. Gideon says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And Gideon looks at the current circumstances that he finds himself in and he, he can't see God in any of it. He sees himself completely alone. He doesn't see God in any of his circumstances. He looks at his suffering and he can't comprehend a God that would, might have a plan and a purpose through it all. If the Lord is with us. You know, there's one word there that changes things entirely. Do you know what that word would be? If the Lord is with us. What, what 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 one word changes that altogether? if we were to remove the word "if," that would be a completely different statement, wouldn't it? Instead of saying "If the Lord is with us, just stating that the Lord is with us, it changes it altogether, doesn't it? And if is Satan's greatest tool. The word "if" is Satan's favorite favorite word because the word "if" brings all of all of the doubt in God that Satan needs. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan has tried to separate us from God through doubt as he said to Eve, did God actually Did God actually say this? He even tried this tactic with Jesus in the wilderness saying, if you are the son of God. Now there was no doubt that Jesus was God's son. Anyone who was at his baptism uh, uh, would have seen this and known this. Yet when Jesus was alone, this was the tactic that Satan decided to use. The word, if, Satan tempted him to doubt what he undeniably knew to be true. And seven years under Midian's oppression, Gideon was convinced that even if there was a God, well, he wasn't for him. Even if there was a God, he was done with his family and he was done with his nation and God had moved on to somewhere else. And division and disbelief, that is how Satan works. That is Satan's greatest way of operating. And we must not allow him to separate us from God, either by dividing us from the church or through disagreement or from prayer and Bible study through wrong priorities. It's when we feel apart from God and suffering comes that Satan takes advantage. When we feel like we're separated from God, that in that circumstance, the the, 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 the suffering comes in, the, um, the the trials come in, that is when, we are most at risk and that is when satan loves to come come uh, in he will try to have us doubt god doubt his provision and doubt his, his love and it's important to recognize when we feel far from god that it's only a feeling when we feel far from god it's only a feeling it's not our reality we may feel like god is not with us but god is always with us he never leaves us when we love him, he is always by our side, even in rebellion. When we feel far from God, it is only a feeling. We read this in Isaiah 59, verse 1 to 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. God is never more than an arm length away. God's ear is never too far away to hear you when you cry out to him. How important it is to be reminded that God never leaves us throughout the scriptures. God reminds us people of this truth. And so this is where Gideon feels. He feels like he's on his own, but that is not the truth. Gideon um, starts to doubt his own ability to save the people. He says, there's no way that I could possibly ever do this. I can't do this in my own strength. And the angel reminds, did God not say, do not I send you? He replied, how how can I save Israel? And the same answer was emphasized, I will be with you. God is always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us when we give our life to him. I am with you. This is all you need to know. This is all you need to believe. It was enough for Jacob. It was enough for Moses. It was enough for Joshua. It should be enough for you. Uh, this is not just an Old Testament promise. Jesus also says to his own disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The very mission that God has, Jesus has given his disciples, it includes you and I, if we, get, if we believe in him and follow after him, he says to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am always with you to the very end end of the age and knowing God is with us gives us the confidence to go and do great things knowing God is with us gives us the confidence that even in the face of our suffering and our trials we know that we are not alone knowing that God is gives us, God is with us gives us the confidence to get to the other side if we know he is with us then we know that he loves us And if we know that he loves us, then we know know that our suffering has a purpose. Because, you know, love is the lens that changes everything. We need to be able to ask the right questions in our suffering. Rather than why is God allowing this to happen, we should be asking, what is God doing in my suffering and what can I learn from this trial? You know, as a father, there are times when my children think that I am causing them to suffer. When I kick them off the PlayStation, when I stop them eating crisps at six o'clock, in the morning when I won't let them wear their princess costumes to school in their minds there's only one reason for me doing these things uh, because I'm trying to punish them but actually we do these things these things are the actions of a loving husband a loving father these are the actions of someone who cares for someone who cares for them and knows what is best uh, a writer Vinita Rendell Reznor says God doesn't love your suffering he loves you and one day when your faith becomes sight you will thank him for every difficulty. The angel of the Lord assured Gideon that he would be with him and that would be enough. And, and Gideon seemed to believe this, but he wanted to make sure that this was a message from God. And he's starting to grow in reverence from this, this person that's in front of them, this angel in front of them. And he moves from the salutation, sir, in verse 13, and now he's saying, Lord, in verse 15, he's starting to realize that there's something sacred about the one who's standing in front of him. And he says, Lord, if I, if I now I have found faith in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Gideon does what comes naturally to him. What we all rec- What we all remember of Gideon, he wants to run a test. He wants to He wants evidence he wants to run an experiment we 've got Professor Gideon here wanting to run an experiment in the lab, and he doesn't run out for a morsel of bread like Abraham did when the angels came to visit him. instead, he goes all out and he prepares a feast and God gives Gideon the sign that he desires that this really is a promise from above um, He brings out Gideon brings out the meal, sets it on a rock. And God puts it up in flames. And God shows to Gideon, I am here. This is me. I am with you. And rather than this be an encouragement to Gideon, what does it do? It terrifies him. Gideon is so scared when he realizes that this is actually God that he has been speaking to. He says, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And when Gideon realizes that it really is God, he's full of fear. And God has to assure him that he will not die. What an important reminder for us of the power of God's holiness and the weight of his glory that Gideon would have this, this reaction when he sees God, when he realizes that he's been face to face with the angel of the Lord. You know, we, we don't have any, any real sense of this, this terror of God or his awesomeness. And, and often we think of intimacy with him as an un- inalienable right, rather than an indescribable gift we need to remember that actually the relationship that we have with god is such such a privilege we have to remember just how holy he is and we have to remember that this we have this indescribable gift when we have access to his throne when we can come to him in prayer when we can come to him in the lord's supper when we can do do these things we need to remember just what a great gift this is rather than an alienable right when Gideon realizes that he has been face-to-face with the, with the angel of the Lord, when he's had this intimacy with God, he is terrified. We need to remember just what a privilege it is to be able to have this access to God. Um, a, a commentator, Dale Ralph D- Davis, writes, There's nothing amazing about grace as long as there's nothing fearful about holiness. But thankfully, Gideon knew better. Nothing is more assuring than God's, I will be with you. Nothing is more overwhelming than the fact that it is God who says it. It is only God who can speak peace to the trembling. So Gideon goes and builds his altar in verse 24, which leads to a, pr- a problem that must be addressed. God tells Gideon to bring down the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole. So Gideon takes 10 men, and pulls down the altar uh, and pulls down the pole. And he does it at night because he was afraid. Now, this isn't a criticism. It was right for Gideon to be afraid. He was doing something that was dangerous. He was doing something um, that could cost him his life. So he did it at night. And God didn't ask him to do it during the day. Um, So the fact that he was afraid was was a strength, not, not a weakness. He was afraid, but he knew God was with him. And so he obeyed. And fear shouldn't stop us from obedience. Just because we're afraid to do something shouldn't stop us from taking those steps of obedience. So God said to to Gideon to take this down, and Gideon went and did it. Why did God want it taken down? Because you cannot live with altars, two different altars. You cannot worship two different people. And so if the children of Israel were going to follow God and not rebel again, then these altars had to come down. And it's the same for us. We must make a choice In our life, we cannot serve two masters. We cannot follow two gods. Someone has to have pole position in our life. And either it's Jesus or it's not. There's no two ways about it. Jesus has given his life for us so that we can give our life to him. Jesus has took away all of the barriers. He has torn down the idols. He has torn down the sin that separates us from God by going to the cross and dying for us and we can have this relationship with him we can put jesus in pole position and know that he is always with us when we put our faith and our trust in him but everything else has to be torn down jesus has to be in pole position or he is nowhere gideon goes and he pulls down the altar and he pulls down the poles and he's ready to bring he's ready to to stop the rebellion of the children of israel and for God to bring healing and restoration. And then afterwards, the townspeople figure out that it was Gideon. I don't know how they figured out that it was Gideon because he did it at night, but presumably one of his 10 men spoke and told them that it was Gideon. And so they realize it was him and they go and they find Gideon, but they don't. Instead, they find his father, Joash, who stands up for his son. He says to, to them, if, if you're protecting Baal, why don't you just let Baal deal with Gideon? If Baal really is the powerful God that you say he is, just let Baal deal with him and you can forget all about him. If he's so great, let him deal with Gideon. I know we see so much of this uh, in 2020, don't we? The level of hatred that we see uh, with Islamic fundamentalists standing up for Allah or, or militant atheists cursing and throwing hatred at a God that they don't believe in. How often do we hear these arguments and engage in these arguments with other people when they're protecting people, when they're protecting things that they don't believe in or protecting people or things that don't exist? At the end of the day, as difficult as these circumstances are, the church can rest in the truth that our God is the God. He chooses to use us as he sees fit, but he doesn't need us. I'm reminded of a quote from Tim Keller who says, trying to prove God is like defending a lion. It doesn't need your help. Just unlock the cage. This is what we need to do with God. We just need to let him, we just need to let him out. We don't need to protect God. We don't need to defend God. We don't need to justify God. We don't need to justify the Bible. We just need to share him with people. We just need to get people to open their Bibles. We just need to tell people about who God is. We need to unleash God. We need to unlock the cage. Joash says, let Baal out of the cage and what happens nothing nothing happens we need to let God out of the cage we don't need to defend him or protect him quite often we feel like we do what we're doing is we're protecting ourselves and we're stopping ourselves from being faithful we're stopping ourselves from being obedient we need to let God out of the cage we need to unleash God in our everyday life and our final four verses we read of Professor Gideon's final forlay into, foray into the lab. He sent word out to the other tribes and families and he's starting to gather people together ready to come and do battle, ready to come and do the things that God is asking him to do. But he starts to have doubts and so he asks God for one more test, one more piece of assurance that God is with him and he lays out a fleece on the threshing floor and asks God to perform a miracle. If there's dew on the fleece, but not on the ground, and God is with him and God obliges. God says, yeah, I'll do this for you. I'll give you this confidence. I'll give you this reassurance. And God, God obliges. And perhaps at this moment, the fear of what he is being asked to do has not dissipated enough for Gideon's liking or perhaps the logic that actually um, the fleece is an absorbent fleece. And so the ground would dry quicker than the fleece would. Perhaps he's starting to think about that. And so he realizes that, do you know what? I'm going to do this the opposite way just to have a double assurance. I'm going to switch things around. And amazingly, God obliges again and Gideon is given the confidence he needs to move forward. You know, when we read this account of Gideon, we are, we're not filled with confidence in him. We see a weak man who time and time again needed to reassure him that God was with him. But yet thousands of years later in Hebrews verse chapter 11, what do we read of Gideon? What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of the lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the judge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That's quite a list of names that Gideon is put up against, is it not? Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, they're all on the same plane as judges. As, sorry, of Gideon. And in Gideon, we don't read of someone who is brave, but we read of someone who is willing. God doesn't mind if we aren't brave because he loves us regardless. When a parent takes their child swimming for the first time and is preparing to let them go, when the child cries out or asks them to stop, they aren't filled with rage. They reassure them. They give them some time to adjust. They tell them, even though they feel like they're alone, they're not. They're not ashamed that their child is afraid of the water because the water is dangerous and should be feared. This is the picture we've got with Gideon. He needs constant assurance, and God is willing to give it to him because he loves him. And God is willing to give us constant assurance in our life as well. We don't need to feel sorry when we come to God and we say, God, I really need you to to, to make this clear to me. God, I really need you to hold me through this because I, I don't know why, but I just can't get through this part of my life on my own. I really need you to lift me up and get me through this. God isn't infuriated by that. God isn't infuriated by your lack of faith. He, he loves you and he wants to lift you up and he wants to make you better. And he, he wants us uh, to, to rely on him. God doesn't want us to be brave. He wants us to be realistic. God doesn't want us to be independent. He wants us to be dependent. He doesn't want us to have confidence in our strength, but he wants us to recognize our weakness and look to him to be our strength because only through him can we ever be made strong. God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. He did it for Gideon. He did it through Jesus and he will do it for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the example that we have in the person of Gideon. Father, I just pray, Lord, that this morning, as we think about some of these these attributes of his life, Father, I just pray, Lord, that there might be one or maybe two things uh, that we would be able to relate to, Father. We pray, Lord, that we'd be able to see Gideon in his weakness and recognize that we too are weak. Father, we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't go through our lives trying to rely on ourselves, our own strength, but we would just give everything over to you and we'd say, Father, would you lift me through this? Father, would you just hold me in your hands? Father, would you just give me everything that I need in order to serve you well? Father, we thank you, Lord, that like Gideon, you have given us a mission, Father, that you've given us a role in our lives, that we would worship you, that we would know you fully, that we would bring glory to your name, that we would bring other people to know you. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would enjoy this mission that you've given to us, Father. We pray, Lord, that we would take it seriously. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do it, that we would rely on you. Father, we pray, Lord, in our times of our difficulty, we wouldn't ask you to come and rescue us, Father, but we would ask you to refresh us, that you would ask us to, that we would ask you, Father, to remind us who you are, to remind you, to remind us of the strength that we have been saved through the uh, person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would daily refresh us, daily remind us of your great strength and our weakness, Father, and that we would reach out to you. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a father that loves to hold us up in your arms. Father, that you are a father who loves to hold us close. And we pray, Lord, that you would just remind us of that daily. We thank you for this uh, family here in Moody's Barns through New Beginnings Church. We pray, Lord, that even though um, they are separate at the moment, Father, we thank you, Lord, that they are together. Together through your word, together through your spirit, uh, together through your love, together through your son. And Father, I pray, Lord, that that would be uh, their 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 belief father they would know that I pray for those who um, haven't been able to join in this fashion father we pray lord that uh, you would still too would give them something of your peace father and something of this community that you have built here in Moody's Burn too so father I pray lord that you would just bless uh, the teaching this morning father that you would find a place for it in each of our lives and we ask it in Jesus name amen